It was like looking at the map of Ephesians before actually starting on our journey through Ephesians. And we saw last week that Ephesians is really about one thing, that God in Christ has reconciled us into new relationship with himself and with each other. Everything in Ephesians is about that. We saw that Ephesians has two basic halves. At chapters 1, 2, and 3 are what we need to know about what God has done to bring us into relationship with himself and each other. And chapters 4, 5, and 6 are what we need to do, how we are to live in light of that. And it's necessary, we said, to travel through chapters 1, 2, and 3 before trying to make our way through the practice, the doing of chapters 4, 5, and 6. If you did not hear the sermon last week, I recommend that you do so on our church's website or my website, because it will give you some, I think, necessary context for our trip through Ephesians this summer. And so today we'll actually start out on our trip and make our way through this first part of Ephesians chapter 1. Now, for my birthday a few years ago, my wife Cara bought me the DVD of one of my favorite movies, The Hunt for Red October. And on this DVD, there is not just the movie itself, but I can watch the movie and listen to the director's commentary. I can hear the director giving his thoughts on a scene-by-scene basis, why he shot the scene a certain way, the effect he was trying to create, challenges he had to overcome, working with certain actors, and so on. It's watching the movie through the eyes of the one who made the movie. And Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 14, are like the director's commentary. We get some insight into what God was thinking when he began putting history into production, as it were. God reconciled us to relationship with himself in Christ. And we see in this passage today, not only what that relationship is and how it came about, but also what God's ultimate purpose is, some of his motivations in doing this. And setting the stage for that, we start in verse 3, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Our adoption as God's children, our redemption, our forgiveness of sin, and so on. Now, God has blessed us with these things, which means that they are for our good and ultimately also for our joy. And because God has blessed us, this scripture says, blessed be God. Blessed be God who has blessed us. Blessed be God. This means praise be to God, but it means more than that too. Uh, In the same way that God has blessed us, we can bless God. That is, we can relate to God in a way that does him good and that gives him joy. Now, of course, God is fully satisfied and content in himself, so we add nothing to his sense of fulfillment, but yet, in a way, we do. We can posture ourselves towards God. We can live in such a way that causes him to say, you know what? It does my heart good to be loved and honored by you. It blesses me. It gives me delight. And as we consider Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 today, blessed be God. May adoration and worship well up in us toward God today. So here we go. 
God has reconciled us into a relationship with himself. What is this relationship? Verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters. The Greek word here includes both. Through Jesus Christ. Sons and daughters of God. That's the relationship into which God has brought us. Now, this in and of itself is enough to make us drop our jaws and fall to our knees and have our souls overflow with wonder. Think of it. Children of God. Since I became a dad a few years back, I think about my relationship with God with a whole new frame of reference. And you who are parents can do the same and ask, does God really think and feel about me the way that I feel about my children? Is God that committed to my good? Does he raise me in a similar way, though with purer love and better wisdom? Does God, as it were, pat my head and kiss my cheek and smile on me while I sleep? Does he really celebrate my little steps of growth? Yes, he does. But just as my small children cannot really understand the nature and depth of my love for them, I know that I don't get God's love for me. It's beyond understanding. But yet it does not change the reality. I am a child of God. In Christ, you are a child of God. I want to draw your attention to the word here in verse 5, the word adoption. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Now, adoption is an amazing gift to give to a child. But in our day, it's hard for us to think about adoption from a purely positive perspective because adoption is, by its very nature, a solution to a less-than-ideal situation. When I was a kid, the youngest in my family, my siblings used to tease me by telling me that I was adopted, that I'd been found in a ditch and brought into the family through the back door of adoption. Now, I was not adopted, and I knew it, and I never took their teasing as anything but a joke. But the humor of their teasing relied on the assumption that adoption falls short of full belonging. God's word says that we have been adopted as God's children. Not natural children, but adopted children. And it might seem to us as though adoption means that in bringing us to himself, God brought us only 90% of the way, that we're still one shade short of full sonship, of full daughtership. But Paul is writing this letter to a leading Roman city. And the Roman understanding of adoption is very different from ours. In the Roman setting, a man could adopt a child to be his heir. Most adoptions in our day are of infants or orphaned children. Not so in Rome. In Rome, someone would often adopt an adult. And when someone was adopted into a family, Roman law was such that the adopted one would have full status as a son. The family was bound by law in matters of inheritance, in all legal matters, to treat the adopted one as an equal. But here's the thing that makes me sit up and take notice. An adopted son was in some ways better off than a natural son. 
Once adopted, an adopted heir could not be disowned. Adoption was irrevocable. A natural son could be disowned. A father could say to his natural son, your choices and your lifestyle are a disgrace to this family. From this point on, you are no longer my son. You have no part in this family. You have no share in our inheritance. With an adopted son, he could not do that. And so the position of an adopted son in the family, entitled to share in the estate and the inheritance, was actually more secure than the status of a natural son. Among the ancient legal documents from this era that have survived, there is a record of a father who disowned his son, only later on to forgive him and receive him back into the family. But later, the father again decided to disown the son and cast him off. And here's what's interesting. The son claimed that the father was not legally entitled to do this because... After he received the son back the first time, the son's status was now as an adopted son. In other words, the son wanted to be treated as an adopted son, not as a natural son, because he had a firmer legal ground to stand on. His status was more secure as an adopted son. And so when Paul says that we are adopted as God's children, what he is implying is not that we are somehow less than full children of God, but in a sense, we are more than full children of God. Not only do we have full status as God's children, but it is an eternal, irrevocable, unshakably secure status as God's children. Do you ever feel like your relationship with God is on shaky ground? That God is always this close to casting you off? Do you ever feel as though the crisis that you're facing, the illness, the financial pressure is evidence that God has distanced himself from you? Do you feel like your choices or your sins have succeeded in pushing God away? Now, please think about this for a second right now. Is there a part of you that believes that God may still let you go? God, forgive our lack of trust. Don't let us fall into the trap of thinking that our own failings as children translate into the failure of God to be our father. Just because we don't always act as children and heirs should, it does not mean that God will stop being a father to us. That's what's meant by Romans chapter 8. I'm convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither things present nor things to come, nor any power, neither height nor depth, Anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are God's child in Christ, that relationship is a secure, eternal relationship. And the reason for that is because of what Ephesians 1 tells us about how this relationship came about. See, if we brought this relationship about then we would have some grounds for believing that it was a tenuous, shaky relationship, always in danger. But this is not something that we did. It's not the child who adopts the parent. This is something God did. And Ephesians 1 shows us a God who acted completely independently, without any help from us, and made us his children. The sovereign will of God is repeatedly emphasized here. 
Notice the words that show up all through this passage that God chose according to the purpose of his will. Again, his will. Again, his purpose. A plan. Again, his purpose. Again, his will. And of course, predestined. In love, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is an important word biblically. And Ephesians 1 fleshes it out for us a little bit by using words like he chose before the foundation of the world. And predestination recognizes simply the reality that we did not meet God halfway in this project. For if you are a child of God, it is because before the world began, before you could do anything at all to influence his decision or bend his favor toward you in any way, God chose you for adoption as his child. Now, people have been uncomfortable with that idea for centuries, that God chooses some and apparently not others. But it seems to me that people wrestle with this idea in, in two ways. They either wrestle with it intellectually as a theological problem, wondering about what it might logically imply about the character of God, or they wrestle with it emotionally, thinking about people that they know and wondering how a good God could possibly have predestined or chosen them for condemnation. That's the better kind of wrestling, by the way, because it comes from a heart of love and compassion. But I think that I at least have, have yet to come across a Christian who wrestles genuinely with this question of predestination when they consider their own experience. Anyone who has truly come to a place of conviction and repentance, anyone who has come face to face with the infinite gap between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of their own heart, knows that they have nothing to contribute to their salvation. Scripture says no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit of God. In other words, there was no way that I would ever commit my life to Christ until God changed my heart to do so. And in that sense, repentance and faith are themselves gifts from God. And I think that what we experience as our decision to get saved is really only a decision that is possible in someone who has been saved. And we'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 2, the classic biblical declaration of our being saved by grace through faith. But to borrow a phrase from that chapter now, it is not, it's not so much that we have been offered life and accepted it, but that we have been made alive. There's quite a difference. Now, it's worth saying as well that the Bible does not offer us a watertight explanation of the relationship between God choosing us and our freedom to choose or reject him. And nor, frankly, does the Bible allay our misgivings about whether God then chooses others for condemnation. In fact, what the Bible does say in Romans 9 when it addresses this specifically is this. You will say then, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? This might make us uncomfortable, but what God says is, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Are we not uncomfortable reading that? But in other words, God is God and does not need to explain himself. And the Bible, frankly, is content to let that all remain a mystery, to be declared and proclaimed if not understood. It's the very same argument that God made to Job when Job demanded to know the reasons for his suffering. God's essential answer to Job over several chapters was this. Job, until you know how to create and run the physical universe, don't tell me how to run the moral universe. Now, God is not being snotty and arrogant about this. But God has shown us abundantly his perfect goodness and wisdom and trustworthiness and power in so many ways. And then he simply calls us to trust that that same goodness and wisdom and trustworthiness and power are equally in operation in the things that we don't understand. And I don't understand it, not by a long shot, but I do know that my being a child of God, that the forgiveness of my sins was and is entirely a work of God. As the one-minute Bible discipleship book puts it this way, calling your conversion a decision for Christ doesn't begin to convey the truth of the matter. Yes, you made a decision based on your own free will. Yes, you were perfectly free to make a different choice than you did. But look at the whole thing on balance from God's perspective. And suddenly your decision to follow Jesus looks a lot less like a bold move on your part and a lot more like a stunning victory on his part. And I think that's right. I think that's biblical. And that's why our being adopted as God's children is such a secure thing. Because God did it. If it rested on me somehow, I would be justifiably nervous. But can God's choosing of us, purposed and accomplished before the creation of the world, be undone? Will the eternal purpose of the God who is infinitely powerful and perfectly wise and good be thwarted by something so pathetic as my own weakness? The Bible says whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And we who by faith in Christ have become children of God can rejoice and be confident in the security of that status. So how did this relationship with God come about? By the express purpose and will and action of God. Now how did God accomplish it? He predestined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ. And we have redemption through his blood. It is through Jesus that we have become God's children. See, even though we were at one time sons of disobedience and by nature children of wrath, God gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins and God laid on him, the scripture says, the iniquity of us all. The blood or the death of Jesus was the payment for our sins. That's how the Bible interprets the death of Jesus of Nazareth. So it's by the blood of Jesus that we have redemption and forgiveness and therefore become children of God. John chapter 1, to those who did receive him, that is Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now Jesus said, though, no one comes to the Father except by me. 
And I'll say a lot more about this again in a couple of weeks when we get to chapter 2. But there are only two possible positions for people. Either we are in trespasses and sins, or we are in Christ. Either we are sons of disobedience and children of wrath, or we are children adopted, children of God. And God has revealed in his word that it's only by the death of Christ, dealing with the reality of our sins and our sinfulness, that we become children of God. God does not accept us as his children because we've been good to our families or served our neighbors or because we are just basically good. It is those who recognize their utter sinfulness and throw themselves on God's mercy. To them, God says, your sins are forgiven by the blood of my son, Jesus Christ, and you are my child too. That's it. And those people recognize with grateful humility that unless God had opened their eyes in the first place to know their sin and changed their hearts in such a way as to be grieved at their sin, they would never have thrown themselves on the mercy of God in the first place. God doesn't meet anyone halfway, but God sovereignly chooses and through Christ redeems and forgives and adopts. If you are a child of God today, you owe it entirely to God And so, yes, blessed be the God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Our relationship with God is that he has made us his children, and he's done it all himself, sovereignly choosing and predestining us to be his children and accomplishing this through Jesus Christ, his son. Ephesians 1, also being the director's commentary, shows us what was going on in the heart and the mind of God in adopting us as his children by the death of Jesus. Verse 5, in love, he predestined us. God acted in love. And the New Testament makes that abundantly and explicitly clear numerous times, drawing a straight line from the death of Christ to the love of God. And the verses that state that are familiar. We know them. John 3, God so loved the world that he sent his son. Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 5, we'll get to this in a couple of months. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 1 John 4, God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or atoning sacrifice for our sins. I mean, any Christian with any knowledge of our faith knows that it is in love that God has saved us. But notice something else in this passage too. God acted not only in love, but in wisdom. Alongside all of these references about God's purpose and plan and will, which clearly indicate the thoughtfulness of God in salvation, there's this also in verse 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us with all wisdom and insight or understanding. God's is not a reckless or irrational love. He's not caught up in the throes of passion. But neither is he cold and clinical. God has powerful emotions. He loves with all of his heart and with all of his mind. 
That means that God knew what he was doing when he chose you. That he's not surprised by your sin. He knows you perfectly. And if you are his child in Christ, he chose you with absolute, perfect foreknowledge of everything about you. And that's why in chapter 3, verse 10, which we said last week was the theme verse of Ephesians, it says that God's intent is that through the church, through this body of people who love God and love each other, the manifold, manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In saving us and creating the church, God is not just showing how loving he is, but how wise he is. God loves us and made us his children in Christ, giving his son to die for our sins, and somehow this is an expression of the perfect wisdom of God. Now, so far, we've talked some about what our relationship with God is, that he's adopted us as his children. We've talked about how this relationship came about, that God chose us, and acting in love and wisdom through the death of Christ forgave us our sins. But we can't understand the work of God without understanding something of the why, the motivation. What was God's purpose? Ephesians 1 tells us something about this too. And what we read in this chapter is consistent with the whole witness of Scripture that whenever God does anything with respect to his people, there are these, these two intertwined motivations behind his actions, always. These two motivations never occur separately. And the first one I'll mention is, the first thing that motivates God is a desire for our good. God always acts for our good. Not always for our comfort, not always for our ease, but he will never do anything in your life. He will never even allow anything into your life except what he will use for your good. Verse 4, that God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, we usually consider that as being a duty. But what it actually is, is a blessing. Holiness and blamelessness is one of the blessings that God has blessed us with in Christ. Instead of being dead in sins, following the course of this world, as it says in chapter 2, God chooses us for holiness. Instead of the baseness and the meanness of the life apart from him, God elevates us into a better life, a higher life that is more full, more satisfying, more freeing, more elevating. And it's the life of Christ in us. What an incredible gift this is. And remember, we don't get all holy and blameless and then God adopts us. No, God chooses us and adopts us into this life. His work happens first for our good. The other side of this twin motivation of God is his own glory. God always only does what will result in his being glorified. And that note is sounded several times in this passage. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, again, to the praise of his glory. And here I can't do any better than the words of John Piper, author of Desiring God, who says, 
Romans 11.36 says, All things are from him and through him and to him. Adoption, therefore, is to him. That is, it's for his glory. The goal of your adoption is that the glory of God's grace would be praised. God adopted us in our unworthiness to make his grace look great. You were adopted for the praise of the glory of his grace. God's action in adopting us is radically God-centered and God-exalting. And you may think, how can God's seeking to exalt himself be loving? The answer is that the glory of God is what we were made to see and enjoy for all eternity. Nothing else will satisfy our souls. Therefore, if God does not exalt himself for us to admire and enjoy, then he is is unloving. That is, he does not give us what we need. We are adopted by God so that we will rejoice that God has made much of us. We are adopted by God so that we will enjoy making much, of God's, making much of God's grace as our Father forever. We are adopted so that in this family, the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, will be the source and the focus of all our joy. We are adopted to the praise of his glory, to the praise of the glory of his grace. It will take an eternity for the glory of that grace to be fully displayed for finite people. Therefore, we will be increasingly happy in God forever and ever. That is the final meaning of adoption. End quote. God always acts for the sake of his own glory, not because he's insecure or petty, but because in the order of things, it is right for God, who is supremely good and beautiful and holy and glorious, to be honored as such. That is, if God did not seek his own glory, he would be acting contrary to what is appropriate and good. And only as we, as people, increasingly recognize and glorify God for who he is and what he has done, only as we do that are we living in reality. So again, God's commitment to his own glory and to our good go hand in hand in all things. God, with love and wisdom and purpose, has chosen to forgive us and adopt us as his children in Christ for our good and for his glory. And so blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. We are in just a moment going to celebrate the the redemption of us, God's children, through the blood, the sacrifice, the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And as we do that, I want to ask you, if if you've been going to church for years, or if you haven't, but you have never understood that God loves you, wants to work in your life to make you his child, if you feel him stirring, even this morning, responding to what he is doing in you, and you want to know what it means to be the child of God, I'm going to give you an opportunity when communion is done to indicate that, and then to come and talk to me about that, or talk to someone here that you know, that you trust. In other words, I'm going to ask you to respond to God's call on your life and to be saved, to become his child. But I'll do that in a few moments.
Now, let us pray, and then I'll ask the deacons to come to the table. Let's pray. God, Ephesians calls you God our Father, and it also calls you God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are our Father, it is because you are his Father, and we are in him. So thank you for being our Father and placing us, as it were, in Christ. Thank you that you gave your Son this lavish gift of grace to die for our sins, that we might be redeemed from slavery to sin, that we might be forgiven, that we might be adopted as your children. You gave your son that we might become your sons and your daughters. And it's amazing to me that you did that not just from a heart that was breaking for our sin, though that's true. Somehow you did it in perfect wisdom. Somehow this, in your mind, this made the most sense. This was the best way the only way. And you did it with full intent and full purpose. That's incredible to us. So this morning we bless you. And Jesus, we bless you for being obedient to your Father. Incredible that you, the perfectly obedient children, child, would give your life for we, the rebellious children. Thank you for your death. We worship you in your resurrected life, our King. And Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, as we celebrate communion, you'd be talking to us, calling people to yourself, saving people, that you'd glorify yourself by doing that. Holy Spirit, be at work. In the name of and for the sake of the glory of Jesus, the Son, God, the Father. Amen. Deacons, can you come and, uh, and we'll honor the Lord?